Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Kritika. Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. The editors at Kritika have created History Exilo so historians have a place to discuss their works, share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most important, step outside of their own expertise silos. So much of the work of the professional historian fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills and not much else. History X Silo seeks to remedy this. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Today, we've brought together two historians who have written about secularism and atheism in 19th and 20th century Europe. We're also doing something new for History X Silo. One of the books we'll be talking about by Todd Weir is not yet published, but it will be published in November 2023 by Cambridge University Press. It even has a cover illustration that you can see on Amazon. Uh, But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me formally introduce today's raconteurs and their books. Todd Weir is professor on the Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. He is the author of Secularism and Religion in 19th Century Germany, The Rise of the Fourth Confession, which won the Jacques Barzun Prize in Cultural History. His new book, which is forthcoming from Cambridge and is a topic of our conversation today, is called Red Secularism, Socialism and Secularist Culture in Germany, 1800 to 1933. Red secularism represents nothing less than an attempt to reimagine in toto the relationship between secularism and socialist politics. Long presented in the historiography, and here I'm quoting Weir, as a defensive stance against the alliance of throne and altar, 
Weir argues instead that there were a range of motivations beneath the socialist embrace of secularism, from the belief that socialists were the true heirs to the Enlightenment, to the Marxist idea that religion was a tool of oppression, to a positive faith in a humanistic, materialistic worldview. The latter is what Weir calls red secularism. Weir's conversation partner today is Victoria Smolkin, who is Associate Professor of History at Wesleyan University and the author of A Sacred Space is Never Empty, A History of Soviet Atheism. Smolkin's book was an honorable mention for the Wayne C. Vucinich Prize for the most important book in Russian, Eurasian, and East European studies. Before Smolkin's book, we had several histories of early Soviet atheist campaigns, but really no analysis about what Soviet atheism meant as a belief system that evolved over the seven decades of Soviet power. This was a shocking lacuna in the historiography on the Soviet Union. Smolkin argues that it was never enough to banish religious belief from Soviet life. It was also necessary, and here I'm quoting Smolkin, to fill Soviet communism's sacred space with positive meaning. Positive meaning was created not simply by replacing traditional religion with the religion of communism, but by reigniting popular faith in science and rationality as powerful tools against human oppression, disease, and even death itself. When I asked Victoria who would make for a good conversation partner, she said Todd would be ideal because she and he disagreed on some important points. Uh, now, this careful reader saw quite a bit of overlap in their work, so I'll be curious to hear where they disagree. Uh, Todd, uh, we, we agreed beforehand that you have the, the podium first, so I turn it over to you. Thank you so much, uh, Stephen, and thank you, Victoria, for thinking of inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Victoria and I have been engaged in conversation about these topics, I think, for about uh, seven or eight years now. And uh, it's wonderful to to be able to reread her book now for this uh, for this occasion. So, uh, you know, I think what we share in common, not to get to differences yet, but what we share in common is we're both, um, you know, making arguments about the relevance of religion and anti-religion to the history of socialism. Uh, and, um, you know, we're both working against a kind of simple idea that socialists were just anti-clerical. Uh, and we were really arguing in different ways that um, there, that there's a force behind, a historical force behind this anti-religious activism situated within uh, socialist movements. Um, so my work, um, you know, Stephen, I think you, you had a nice summary of it, but the what I'm calling red secularism is a kind of a culture that exists within the socialist milieu. And, uh, and it begins from the observation that whenever we look at socialists who are very engaged in religious questions before 1933, okay, that's when my book ends, but sort of the high point of German socialism, secularism, uh, we, when we look at these, these activists, we find that they were all uniformly committed to what they would call something like uh, natural scientific worldview, uh, Weltanschauung. And um, so it's, it's not simply that they're operating from something like what Marx would have considered a, a Marxist critique of socialism. They, they were really committed to the idea that natural science provides an imminent understanding of the world. Uh, so they were really trying to foster a culture 
that was secularist, and they shared a lot with these kind of what are called maybe bourgeois or liberal secularists. Um, so I went about trying to look at this culture or subculture within the left, and I ended up saying, okay, well, rather than looking at this as just part of socialism, I want to examine it as a kind of culture in its own right. And I, I sort of, for kind of heuristic purposes, thought, okay, let's look at socialism as a type of culture. And so what I'm interested in is the kind of, you know, Venn diagram, the overlapping part between secularism as culture and socialism as culture. And that's that sphere of red secularism. So the book uh, examines the ways that that, um, yeah, subculture of red secularism had an impact in the history of socialism and in history more generally. So, for example, um, when if you look at worker education, which was really important to socialists uh, in the early part of the 20th century, you find there that what are workers reading initially? They don't read Marx principally. They don't even read Kautsky. They're really reading um, a lot of Darwin and the interpreters of Darwin in the German context. So people like Ernst Haeckel or Arnold Dodel, uh, these are guys who, who basically turn Darwin into a worldview. Um, so it's very important for worker biographies. Also, if you look at kind of religious experiences that workers had, socialists, they, they didn't often convert to sect socialism directly uh, from encounters with socialist theory. They often, as a first step, converted to secularism. Uh, and they, they, they describe these conversion experiences that they had after reading, you know, Ernst Haeckel or something. So, so it's important for the kind of socialization of worker radicals. Um, you know, we also find, I also found that a lot of the, the dissenting movements in socialism, so revisionism or radicalism, that's often where these secularists congregated. So they have a kind of dissenting role within the history of German uh, socialism. That's quite interesting. Um, and what I also found was quite uh, interesting was that they, you know, the, Germany goes through a secularization process with the Weimar Constitution in 1919, where they declare an end to the state church. But the Weimar Constitution kept religious instruction in schools, essentially uh, controlled by the churches. So it gave a reason for these free thinkers, secularists, to keep uh, going with their anti-religious activities so that the high point in certain ways of this secularism is in the 1920s and and the um, you get up to half a million socialist free thinkers uh, and this is where the connections to the Soviet Union are very important uh, they, they are connected to the the militant godless of the of the Soviet Union um, so yeah in a sense we have a continuation of this red sectors right up until 1933 when Hitler puts an end to it effectively, along with socialism and communism in, in Germany. And um, do we, like, I just, just will mention one thing. So we we're interested in this conversation, I think about looking where our historiographies interact. And um, I'm really addressing principally the enormous literature that exists on German socialism and on German communism which was largely written, um, the, the most important works that are still talked about, written by West German social historians in the 80s and 90s. Um, and what I found was that for those social historians, they believed that uh, this red secularism uh, essentially always remained marginal and was of decreasing importance throughout the history of socialism. So they had a kind of learning curve for uh, social democracy, let's say, that was 
that this was kind of this utopian secularist Darwinist thinking was really a 19th phenomenon that just kind of withered away as social democrats became more pragmatic, more rational, uh, and so on. And they thought that the you know communists, the social historians tended to be social democratic, and they tended to also not like communism. Um, <clears throat> so for them. Uh, so the history of social democracy was a kind of a learning process to get away from Marx, uh, radical Marxism and from worldview secularism. Um, and so I'm, I was arguing against that to the extent that for me, what, what I see in the history of red secularism is a, is a, um, yeah, is a kind of a, a lack of development in a sense. I think that this worldview that develops in the 19th century remains attractive for German workers up until 1933, and, and these structures are continually being recreated in part because the state does not fully secularize in the Weimar period. And so in a sense, I'm, I'm arguing against this learning curve, uh, this maturation process in German socialism. Uh, and that's, that's a bit where my intervention takes place in the historiography. Thanks. Um. Well, there, I mean, first of all, let me just say thank you um, to um, Stephen for the invitation to discuss this. And I'm so delighted to be able to have this conversation with Todd. It's a conversation, as he noted, that we began many years ago. And it's been really exciting to see this book kind of come into itself um, and, and really see its final version, see all the pieces uh, um, connected um, uh, to one another in a narrative. And I want to just begin by saying that this is just an incredibly impressive piece of scholarship. There is so much, I mean, empirically, there's just so much there. And I, it's hard for me to imagine someone else needing to write anything more about these particular um, uh, groups because you have done such an incredible job of excavating you know what you call red secularism but not just red secularism but red secularism in different in its different kind of um ecosystems whether that's socialism or secularism or increasingly toward the end of the story um the the kind of decline of weimar and um the rise of national socialism which um is is a, is a very interesting part of the story that i think is worth coming back to later in the interview um you know, I think in terms of um, of what unites, uh, what our common project is in looking at this phenomenon, um, there's a, a term that came up several times in the course of your description, which was, you know, marginal, right? And there's this question about um, whether you call it secularism, atheism, these kind of worldview projects um, and their relationship to um, political power, both in its kind of um, radical forms, right, and dissenting forms um, when it is out of state power, and also in the Soviet case when it becomes part of the state apparatus. Now, when I was working on my research um, on the Soviet atheist experience, there are a number of things that motivated me um, to look more closely at that story. Um, the first was was historiographical and then the second was more historical so the historiographical one was that um 
the ubiquity of godless communism as a trope was so profound that it seemed that there was no further questions that needed to be asked. In fact, there was no question that needed to be asked at all. We already knew what it was. It was godless communism, right? So there hadn't really been a, a real investigation of what is underneath that term. And one of the things that I found really useful in your book is an illumination in a much broader context than the Soviet of the, the coming together of the very component parts of something that then ultimately became godless communism and was deployed as such um, for many decades, actually, after your story ends, which is really, really fascinating. So for me, there was this kind of question about, okay, well, what is godless communism, right? And and what how does it come, uh, come to be and what is it comprised of? Um, and moreover, um, to kind of complicate that story, we had a literature about the Soviet experience that really relied on religion as a kind of heuristic um, uh, to understand this, the political project, right? So using categories like political religion, using categories like totalitarianism, secular religion, and so on, to make a, an argument about the very nature of this project. And when I was in graduate school, and we were, you know, you begin your um, study of the Soviet project in a way through the totalitarianism school. Like that's the kind of the the, the founding of the of the um, of Sovietology. And it it was striking to me that this kind of use of political religion or totalitarianism as an analogy really was completely divorced from and disengaged from religion as an actually existing political and social category and phenomenon. And this is something that you talk about in your um, in your introduction as well, right? That there's actually um, this very almost um, facile use of religion as a category without really looking at, okay, well, there are real religious institutions at play and there's real religious kind of mobilizations and social and cultural and, you know, what, um, what are they doing? Are they just standing by while the state becomes more and more sacred? Or, you know, how does this kind of transfer of the sacred work? So, that was what initially historiographically led me to ask the question about Soviet atheism is, you know, what is it? And also, um, you know, what happened to religion? You know, how is religion actually uh, participating in um, in constituting this atheist um, project? And then the historical part was this assumption, again, um, if, if the godless communism piece was the assumption of external you know, non-Soviet people um, and in the historiography. On the Russian and Soviet side, um, there was also this assumption that there are no questions that were worth asking about Soviet atheism because it was so marginal, right? And here's this kind of overlap of marginality, that they're just these weird people that just kind of, you know, are engaged in this, this peculiar, um, you know, almost esoteric work that that are trying to, you know, in, engage in this kind of cultural enlightenment projects, but that they're not politically um, consequential enough for us to really devote serious attention to the study of how this develops over time. So in the Soviet case, or in the, the post-Soviet, I should say, case, I would, you know, when, when people would ask me, what am I researching? I would say, you know, Soviet atheism. And the question was usually why? 
know, why would you want to research that? It was no, nobody cared about it. You know, when we did have to study in, it in school, we didn't take it seriously, right? The, then state, the party didn't take it seriously. The people didn't take it seriously. So why study it at all, right? So there was this kind of assumption about its marginality. And what I found really interesting, um, you know, the big finding in my book for me um, is that the fact of indifference to it was actually incredibly politically consequential. And that the fact that people didn't take it seriously was itself a, a project and a, and a phenomenon that um, should be taken seriously for by an historian. And I found that in your case, again, there was this, um, question about whether it's marginal or whether it's central. And as I as I went through reading the book, I found myself kind of going back and forth, right? Some some sections I was like, oh, this is just, you know, kind of secularists doing their thing and nobody's really paying attention. And then in other parts of the book, I felt like, no, this is really actually a decisive mechanism for reconfiguring political alliances. So I guess my question is, um, in part because your your story is so rich, right, that taking a few steps back or kind of zooming out a little bit, how would you situate, you know, the, the, the centrality versus marginality of not just kind of your actors in their habitus, right, but also for, me, for you as an historian in terms of, um, you know, how much we should um, invest in the category and in the study of red secularism, um, despite the fact that, as you know, right after 1933, it really disappears from the political stage in Germany. Yeah, great, great question. Thank you. Uh, you know, um, it's a, it is it is it is really an important question, like how to deal with the marginality of these groups. So I guess I'm thinking as you're talking. Uh, I suppose the issue is that the, the red secularism as a kind of undercurrent um, is very important also to mainstream socialists and communists, right? Uh, August Babel, when he's in jail, he's reading Heckel, right? Uh, um, Walter Ulbricht, you know, the first, uh, the, the sort of Stalin era leader of East Germany was socialized completely in this milieu. So underlying these biographies, there's loads of this kind of thinking, right? They're, they're reading, they actively pursue two materialisms and they don't see any contradiction between them. Uh, so on, on that level, it's not marginal at all. Uh, what's, I suppose, interesting is the fact that um, as these politicians uh, do get closer to state power, they, they suppress um, this culture as something that deserves to be in the forefront of the socialist movement. So I think that they realize that even though they themselves partake in the ideologies, let's say, associated with it, worldview, say, <clears throat> even though they, they do uh, avidly read this stuff and are moved by it, they nonetheless think at a certain point in their careers uh, for party interests um, that these loud free thinkers need to be pushed a bit aside um, and, and you find these nice quotations. I had one from our friend Helene Tod, who, uh, you know, dug up something from Walter Ulbricht, again, the leader of East Germany in, in after 45. And he himself had this biography really as a kind of quasi free thinker. But he said, you know, we have to suppress the free thinkers after 1945 because we have power. We have state power. These free thinkers are just going to set the population against us. 
right? So here he is. And then five years later, he's the one who's pushing the, the creation of the things that you've done such a good job of uncovering, which are all of these socialist rituals. So he goes back to his repertoire of these, these you know, life rituals that, that you've also looked at, and he pulls them out again and makes use of them, but now as state rituals, right? So, uh, so, so that's kind of my, 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 um, yeah, where I, where I go with that question of marginality. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's there in the kind of soup of the socialist culture, but uh, as an explicit movement that needs to be recognized, it's, it's pushed aside. Um, could, could I then ask? Yep. <clears throat> well, I was going to ask you a question along the same line. So. Uh, you you analyze uh, this type of atheist secularist activity as a state project, right? And we, we can talk more about that because that's where our differences lie. It's really about the perspective we take, right? But nonetheless, um, you're also talking about the marginality of, of these Znania activists, right? The, these atheist activists in the Soviet apparatus. So how do you explain in the Soviet case in the 50s and the 60s, the marginality you know, if you want to use that term, of some of these these uh, these actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so. It's a really interesting and kind of a paradox that's at the very center of I think studying this material. And um, to kind of loop back to what you were saying about um, this this idea that once in the German case, once in power, the political. Um, once they move closer to state power, they feel they need to somehow like eschew and shed this um, this culture. In a way, it sounds like you're saying that um, the historians, I mean, not just the historians are saying that there's a maturation, quote unquote, process, right? That as socialism enters, uh, becomes part of this, or kind of gets closer to state power, it sheds some of these, you know, um, utopian elements, but also the actors themselves are kind of describing it that way. So thinking about that right the question is and, and this is in response to your question about you know so how do i explain the marginality right it's um it's a question in part of do we take the actors at their word right so if um you know do we have to right there's a part of um of i think of the historical project of methodologically where we listen to the voices of those who speak and I think that that emerges from a really uh, productive and positive impulse, because um, especially as it came out of social history and subaltern studies, right? So we're listening to voices that have not generally had the, um, the floor. But sometimes, I mean, just because you're hearing voices, and especially in my case, these are voices not of subalterns, but of middle tier bureaucrats and, you know, kind of middle to upper tier bureaucrats, you don't necessarily have to take them at their word, right? You don't actually, or, and, and even, even um, you know, former students of Soviet atheism in college, just because they think it isn't important doesn't mean that it wasn't actually important. <laughs> Um, and I think you see that when in the Soviet case, when, um, and here I think is where we get into the categories being tricky, um, when 
after multiple enlightenment and um, and anti-religious, anti-clerical campaigns, they arrive at a point where they recognize that the majority of the people they're looking at are actually indifferent to both religion and atheism as projects. They just are uninterested in that conversation. And from that perspective, you know, that would suggest that it had become so marginal, both religion and, and atheism, right? That it was no longer worth considering at all. And yet this indifference becomes the a, a focal point of uh, party anxiety because the indifference is something that is, it, the indifference is not the goal of the project. The project is not to kind of make all belief marginal, but to transfer the categories of belief and the object of belief right from religion to atheism so from that perspective i think there's an important distinction between the secular and the atheist because they really see the atheist as a kind of positive worldview and they see at least in the soviet case the secular is much more um a kind of um aligned with indifference to the question and a kind of separation from the public sphere separation between church and state um but in the in a way what you realize or, or what they realize i guess along the way is that um in trying to fight religion and in um ultimately not um in in not investing and not prioritizing atheism enough that they had created a new kind of problem for themselves right so by assuming this was a marginal phenomenon that they had created a new political problem which was a population that was kind of divesting from the project as a whole the, the communist project as a whole so um so from that perspective i think it, there's a really interesting contradiction here of us of something that's assumed to be marginal absolutely kind of uh, to the point of of almost irrelevant and laughable becoming actually the the in my view something that that holds the center whether that center is in in my case as um something that underpins the moral and political legitimacy of the communist project by kind of um, limiting and negating all other forms of authority. Or in your case, and, and, and this is just one example, I'm sure there's more ways of thinking about it, but in your case, I saw it as, as something that is utilized actually politically in a kind of anti-communist way, right? So the secularism is so central to the to all of these positions, both in the confessional sphere and the political sphere, um, to creating coalitions against um, against the socialists, right, and the communists, that how can it that it's absolutely central that without it these coalitions it's hard to imagine these coalitions um, being able to hold and certainly to hold well enough to bring to power some of the things that we you know some of the some of the actors that we then see in power so yeah it's a kind of something that's assumed to be marginal but then actually deployed in a way that it makes it politically very consequential i think yeah you know one thing i thought maybe uh since we were talking about these the terms um this 
this issue I found interesting in your book, I keep asking myself, okay, what's the difference between communism and atheism? What's the difference between Marxism and atheism, right? And obviously they, they are different sort of theories, I guess, but you know, what's wrong with indifference towards atheism in a sense, right? I mean, if you if you still have communism and Marxism and class struggle and revolution, and who cares if the people, you know, are interested in scientific culture and you know, the, the, I just wanted to bring up this distinction between the terms ideology and worldview, because I found it interesting that, it, you know, in the little, in my introduction, I, I found some instances, I think, where Marxists, or let's say socialists in the late 19th century, didn't necessarily like the term worldview to talk about their project, uh, because worldview was already occupied by the these dissenting, you know, uh, atheists, let's call them, uh, secularists. Um, and so you have a kind of tension, I think, in the socialist movement between people who think that worldview is really important, and that has to do with science and faith and anti-religion, and the people that think, uh, no, just political ideology is all we need to hold ourselves together. And so there's always this debate about, you know, does a movement need also a grounded faith in a kind of totalizing worldview, or is it enough to have just a political uh, explanation of, um, in the sense of, you know, class struggle and, and so on. And, and I, I, just to throw it back to you, like, what's so bad about having indifference towards scientific atheism? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah i mean i think that that's politically you it, it raises the, it raised the question for me you know why why create i mean it, it, after that point it becomes a, a problem of their own making <laughs> because they continue to draw attention to the the fact that there aren't that there is a lack of atheist conviction in soviet society um and that that is a sign of a problem with the communist project as a whole and i think without their kind of connection of those things this was not a contradiction that bothered people in soviet society right so so in a way um you could imagine a context maybe in which they say, okay, this is good enough. Let's stop here. The churches are kind of, people don't really care. And the churches are kind of marginal and, but you know, they didn't do that. So then the question is why not? Um, and that I think goes to your point about ideology and worldview. 
you know, they're not ideology and worldview, I guess, I, I they're not really coterminous. And in the Soviet context, the worldview piece of ideology was always referred to as either scientific atheist worldview or scientific materialist worldview. So it was specifically there to mark this space that was you know kind of fundamentally hazy right that was not about politics was not about economy it was not about culture as you know in the sense of kind of traditional cultural work but i guess the best way to describe it is something spiritual right that that kind of spiritual space was um filled with something and if that continued to be filled with alien elements, whether those were religious or new age, right? Or, you know, because that was the other problem is that you were having a proliferation of not just indifference, but also new religious movements and yoga and, 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 you know, um, Hare Krishna and, and then, you know, kind of esotericism and astrology, um, but also uh, a turn to a kind of a, a rather actually pretty limited religious revival um, socially. There was a sense that if the if that spiritual space, for lack of a better term, that worldview space was occupied by these contaminants, right, by these alien elements, that somehow the political project was either incomplete or or really threatened. And it's unclear to me from where I'm sitting, and I think you you you're, you have um, I think Herniker kind of talking at the very end of in the conclusion, where he's describing worldview, and he's saying it's hard for you to understand why we back then felt this way, and in a way I feel a little bit like it's hard to understand why they believe that the worldview space was so important that until it became kind of lined up um, and harmonized with the political, economic and everything else, that the project was incomplete. But they did believe that. And I would ask you, you know, why? I mean, in a way, because you really focus on worldview as a category that emerges, you know, much earlier than where I'm beginning to look. Um, so why they invest you know, why is there a worldview shaped hole in the project that they feel um, holds the key to the success of the project as a whole? Um, because that's in a way where what it comes down to in the Soviet case is once you remove that worldview component and you introduce pluralism, there's a question about what is the point then of communism as a political project if there is ideological pluralism why should this party be in power and not any other party why should we have not have multi-party right so so in a way the whole thing begins to unravel and why worldview monism um and its specific kind of monism is so important. I would be interested to hear the kind of genealogy of that and how you understand it. Because to me, I never, I don't know that I ever came up with uh, a convincing enough answer to that, other than to know that I thought it was a strange thing to care as much as they did about it. Yeah, I, I think I would explain it um, out of 19th century, mid-century radicalism, you know, out of the revolution of 1848, we have religious dissent, we have political dissent, social unrest, uh, and 
you know, at that time, this, yeah, let's say religiously, anti-religiously inspired monist worldview, that is a kind of materialism that's uh, not saying life is just matter and motion, but that that is meaningful and that that is the totality of, of our existence somehow. And it's wrapped up in evolution and it's a, a beautiful uh, evolving story of nature and humanity and so on. That's that's where they were coming from. So there is a, uto- a specific utopian vision already in the mid 19th century that's uh, coalesces around that kind of thinking. And then, of course, you have, uh, you know, social revolutionary ideals that, you know, Marxism, let's say, uh, manages eventually to sort of capture in some sense for the for a lot of working class radicals. But they but they really continue to coexist. Uh, So it's a kind of, um, yeah, it's a type of undercurrent, perhaps. And there's a tension, I think, also in people's biographies where they they really want to participate in both of these utopian visions. Uh, and I think that that persists. And then, you know, we said, okay, as people come into state power, um, the socialist vision predominates in a lot of the thinking, right, for these these political activists. And you brought the example of the uh, 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 Honecker, who was the last, you know, dictator, let's say, of the last chairman of the East German Communist Party. And um, what's interesting is that he obviously maintained underneath this commitment to this materialist worldview while being a good Bolshevik. And, uh, and it's interesting at the, at this point, you know, our stories again converge a little bit because you're mostly talking about the fifties and sixties and I'm talking about the early 20th century. But in my epilogue, I do talk about this moment of 1988, 89 and, uh, and your book ends on the same note. Right. And what's interesting in East Germany is that instead of just embracing a dialogue with Christianity, uh, the East German leadership, because they're basically anti-Gorbachev, you know, they're they're angry about Gorbachev and all the things he's doing. And so um, what they see is that the churches, rather than being their, their conduit for new activity, they, they begin to become suspicious of the churches as the location of the opposition to their regime. And this is what churches were doing. At the same time, they did have a lot of direct control through the, you know, whatever they they had a lot of manipulative control over the churches so they could to an extent rely on controlling the churches and yet in 1988 the politburo of the of the east german party said we're going to found an an, an association of free thinkers you know so they basically go back and they try to resurrect it and so in a sense they're going back to that worldview uh, but at the moment of state collapse and so uh you know it's I think it's the 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 fact that their power is threatened, uh, that they're grasping at straws a little bit here. Um, but but they, in that in that emerging pluralism that you're talking about, um, they they realize that they want to actually go back to this fighting atheism, uh, which which some of them had in their in their biographies, like like Hanukkah. And so he says, oh, you, it's hard for you to understand this this worldview now. But uh, and, and he becomes free thinkers uh, in that society. Yeah. Yeah. But it's fascinating actually reading that because if you kind of, you know, the way my book ends is in 1988, when Gorbachev kind of makes this concession to allow religion back into the public sphere, it has to do with the millennium. And, you know, that all really takes place in the spring and summer of 88. And in in your case, looking at it, I I do, I, I had the question of whether they're looking at what's happening in the Soviet Union 
where they're saying, let, let's let go of all this worldview stuff. It's not, we're not going to press it, right? In a way, kind of following the trajectory that we were saying before, you know, who really cares about worldview? Let's let people believe what they believe as long as they are, you know, good Soviet citizens working toward the project, not challenging us politically and continuing to contribute in terms of labor. And, um, and I wonder, I actually had the question, I don't know if this is something you can answer, whether they're looking at what's happening in the Soviet Union, because that unleashes, you know, the, the Baltic states all then kind of rise up and the churches come in and, and become political, real political actors, whether that makes them kind of go say, no, 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 we got to, you know, read kind of redouble our worldview commitments, because that's the thing that's kind of holding this, um, you know, holding the line against these, against these um, alternative competing authorities, spiritual ideological authorities. Um, and, you know, one thing I was thinking about as you were speaking, you know, one of my favorite lines in your book, um, you write that for many workers, socialist worldview was a mixture of secondhand Marx and firsthand Haeckel, which I thought was just, you know, just a really great um, articulation of the social reality of these ideologies and worldviews. And it made me wonder whether part of the importance of worldview in this case is that it's more accessible in the sense of, you know, that it's, it's easier to penetrate what they are talking about. Um, and it's more directly um, evident kind of on a on a day-to-day -day material level what it is that is different about a monistic worldview and a scientific atheist worldview versus a religious one than it is to understand you know the you know dust capital and kind of understand the you know the the complex infrastructure of marx's political economy because you say you know kind of secondhand marx right most most people read i mean most people were operating with secondhand marx the vast majority, because they needed a translation, right? And because firsthand Marx had a little bit of too many things that maybe weren't, um, you know, weren't so useful to the Bolshevik project. Um, but but this kind of firsthand hickle, you know, in a way, um, I think, you know, do you think it's a matter of it being more something that was easier to translate and more accessible to people, and then because it could go hand in hand with the Marxism, you could kind of, you know, carry it along with you, um, or is that too kind of? Moved, I think it moved people in, in some sense. It was simple. Okay, the the brilliance of like phrenology or any of these popular scientific uh, theories is that you could go to a class in an afternoon and feel like you had half mastered the whole thing. So Heckel had a very simple story about uh, Darwinian evolution, connected it to the history of geology, the development development of matter towards increasing complexity, and then at the other end added on cultural, you know, progress and the history of Europe. And so he had a continuous, you know, long arc of the entirety of, of, of the natural world and human existence and culture and history and everything, uh, and, and could deliver that all with a kind of Darwinian core. So that was very powerful to people. And um, I think it, it gave them both, a, it, it empowered them to the sense that they, they felt as workers, hey, I, I finally understand, you know, how the world works. Um, and, and also it addressed certain needs that religion addressed. So it was naturally a competitor to religion, this worldview, in a way that 
you know, theories of social clash and evolution, those don't necessarily uh, contradict, uh, you know, religious teachings. They do contradict the social teachings of the churches, but but not the core truths of, of a, you know, monotheistic religion. Um, so the, I, I suppose those are the, some reasons why people were so attracted to, to monism. Uh, but going back to your question before about the, how East Germans were seeing the Soviet Union and these religious politics, I, I was actually a student in East Germany in 88 in the spring as an exchange student in Rostock. And I remember, I think I remember this, who knows, this could be a uh, fake memory, but uh, I seem to remember reading that article that you cite in your conclusion, Nina Andreeva, who uh, says, I will not give up my principles. And it was some article that was an op-ed, you know, by uh, this, this woman. Uh, and it was published, I think, in the leading communist newspaper in East Germany, Neues Deutschland. So they, because they were anti-Gorbachev, they, they saw that opposition within the communist party and they, they latched onto it. And I think you connected, as I recall, that article by this woman to atheism and to not give up on the atheism and to not give in to these, uh, you know, religious pluralism in the worldview sphere. And that would have made sense to those East German um, bureaucrats, the uh, Politburo members, because uh, precisely they are the ones that this not long after they want to resurrect militant atheism as a as a, you know, as a state strategy. Um, so, so they were they were reading it, but they came to opposite conclusions in a sense. Uh, they agreed with the opposition to Gorbachev. Um, just to, to change the conversation a little bit. Oh, do you have something else you wanted to? Well, I was going to ask. I guess this this really foundational question that's connected to this, because in a way, and the, this is where the focus of our projects is is you know it's kind of a Venn diagram that has some overlapping parts and then some parts that don't. Um, this idea of of um, you know atheism or secularism as culture um, or worldview versus politics. And, you know, I think in both of our cases, we talk, you talk about in your book, especially um, uh, because in my in mine, it comes to power quite early. Right. But in your book, especially you talk about atheism, secularism as worldview projects being really about anti authoritarianism and personal autonomy and um, and then, you know, it does raise this question of whether it can survive becoming part of a political disciplinary project. Right. Um, so in a way, the fact that it survived at all in the Soviet context um, is already in a way counterintuitive and contradictory if you look at its origins. You know, in the, so in the Russian case, you have Victoria Freda's book traces this very well. It begins too as a kind of anti-authoritarian, um, you, know, you know, kind of project of personal autonomy and radical unbelief. And it's really connected with all of these questioning of, 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 of different forms of authority. But when it becomes part of authority and it becomes a disciplinary project, um, it, yeah, it, it becomes it's it's unclear to me how it can work. Yeah, well, you know, we we both um, are involved in this. Uh, this is to open the conversation a bit more to this topic of secular studies, right? Uh, it, it's a big interdisciplinary uh, conversation which has focused really on. Uh, you know, initially on the context of colonialism and then brought in, you know, comparing, say, France, Turkey and the U.S. forms of, of uh, uh, yeah, secularism, for lack of a better word. 
Um, and, and both of us, I think we're very keen on in interacting with this literature, which is, you know, very strong in, in, the, uh, in many fields right now. Um, and so uh, each of our books, I think, is a, is a different approach to this uh, question. And I, you have a nice definition of secularism, political secularism in your, in your introduction. And I, and I don't have the quote here anymore, but essentially it's about, like you said, a disciplinary project about governance. Uh, so there's a focus really on uh, power, um, often associated with state power. Um, and, and so I think it, your, your question then is about, um, you know, what happens when secularists, in my sense, right, cultural secularists enter into or are assimilated into state power. And, um, you know, I didn't actually deal with that in my book. So I guess this is where the, the important question is, well, if you do the long arc from the mid 19th century through to 1991, uh, you know, that's more of the story than you might tell, or maybe we talk about it together. Um, so uh, I, I think that these cultural elements that are developed out of this particular worldview, um, they, are, they are a resource that exists deep in the socialist culture, deep in the Bolshevik culture. Um, there are um, efforts in the 20s already, and this is re responding to Lenin, essentially, I think, German communists, because they are associated already with an existing state power, namely the Bolshevik Soviet state, uh, they are already, I think, looking at this worldview secularism in a new light as a kind of uh, deviation, um, as a threat to the political project of Bolshevism. And so they then begin to, with a very harsh critique of any kind of theories that, that, that might say we deserve space next to Marxism-Leninism. And they begin this, you know, in this kind of way that Bolsheviks do. I mean, very brutal, you know, uh, ad hominem attacks on, on specific advocates of this kind of cultural socialism that exists in the Weimar Republic. Um, so so you, I think you see, even in the time period I'm looking at, um, the ways in which this Bolshevik project uh, starts to kind of try to shape, you know, partly destroy, partly transform this culture of secularism into something that can serve a specific, very, you know, narrowly defined uh, political culture. Uh, and, and so, and that's where I think then the connection is to, to your book, because as, as you know, as I as I look at the characters in your book, I'm seeing I'm seeing elements of this earlier clearly defined culture appearing kind of in the cracks, and that's why I asked you about the marginality of some of those people because some of them strike me as these these kind of cultural socialists that a good hardcore Bolshevik would make fun of. Oh, absolutely! I mean, they absolutely are, and in fact, um, you know, the the this was a tension from the very beginning between the League of Militant Godless and the party, right? So even then there was, you know, they were still the League, even in its kind of Bolshevist guise, was still very much motivated as, as most of its members were motivated by a kind of worldview project, not, um, you know, they didn't need to be motivated by the Bolshevik project that was kind of assumed to carry with the worldview project, but that the center of their attention was the worldview project. And you see that being um, slowly and then quickly kind of sidelined um, and ultimately the league is shut down. Um, 
um, you know, effectively by the end of the 30s, but formally, I think, 43. And, um, and the thing about when they resurrect the project, the atheist project under Khrushchev, um, after Stalin's death, when he's trying to reinvigorate communism, with this injection of atheism, right, and to kind of repurify it by uh, pointing to the contradictions of having allowed religion to come into Soviet public life in, in any shape or form. The first thing they do is they resurrect, they kind of excavate these old first generation old atheists, including people like Ali Shuk, you know, who was the deputy um, um, head of the of the league, and there are all sorts of really fascinating discussions that then begin to happen because um, you know the 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 ideological apparatus basically eradicated atheists as a kind of uh, expert category. Um, so you have these old atheists um, who kind of were put to the side and have been sitting quietly for almost two decades. And then you have these young people who are being, you know, mobilized to do this work, but have no expertise, no skills, you know, very little knowledge um, about religion or about theology. And um, at the same time, are anti-Stalinist, right? So don't want to kind of deploy the same kind of anti-clerical methods of the first generation. And so you have this, I think that I talk about this in one of the chapters where you have this moment where they get them together in a room and they're trying to say, oh, great, you know, the, the old atheists, the old worldview atheists are kind of saying, finally, you know, you understand the project and, you know, you understand the assignment and here's what you do and here's how we did it and here's how you should do it now and um you know the second generation um and the ideological elite at that point is saying no 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 we can't have this kind of anti-clerical you know center it really has to be you know about science and about enlightenment and it really can't be this kind of aggressive um um in a way kind of hostile socially alienating um worldview exercise so so they they do still exist in the cracks and in fact some of the most fervent atheists um in the soviet case for example um one of the main characters in my story is this um former seminarian by the name of Yevgraf Duluman, he, you know, they're very much worldview atheists um, that, um, you know, that that are very comfortable with the kind of apologetic thrust of the of the project. Um, but they're in the minority, you know, and, and in fact, you know, they're doing uh, the, the, the apparatus is doing, uh, you know, all they can to kind of tamper it down, you know, to be more subtle, to be more, you know, to emphasize things that are not so worldview um, uh, kind of um, that don't center worldview as much, such as, you know, the space program and science, right, things that people can kind of get excited about without having to grapple with the existential questions um, directly, right? So they're trying to kind of get at this indirectly. So yeah, they are, they are still there. Um, and it's hard to imagine the project without them, because then, you know, really, what would they be doing at all, right? Would they really have no knowledge and no expertise and no skills? Um, but they are always kept on the margins. They never really let them, you know, kind of occupy us because they, I think there's this sense that they, 
I mean, I guess it's the same thing you're describing, right? That politically they look they look foolish, right? That they look kind of too extreme or too uh, uh, too um, um, eccentric, right? Um, to be taken seriously politically and therefore can cause political damage. And so they're kind of always trying to keep them a little bit, um, you know, off the center stage. Yeah, what's interesting that that tension uh, continues right throughout the history of. Bolshevism. Um, one thing I wanted to just touch on, uh, because, you know, we're trying to talk across his, uh, historiographies. I mean, you know, German history, Soviet history, uh, you know, where where do we see these these transnational uh, movements in, in our subjects? And uh, what's interesting, of course, is that these uh, red secularists in Germany, they don't seem to be receiving uh, Russian uh, intellectual currents much until after the the Bolshevik Revolution, and then um, really there's they they become I think involved in these struggles that you're talking about right between the you know there was the struggle before the First World War between the God Builders and Lenin you know with led to his uh, book uh, on what was it called Imperial Criticism or uh, yeah. And um, and then that that kind of comes back to an extent that that uh, basically these even though he he you know uh, gives them a dressing down Bogdanov and Lunacharsky they come back with power with positions after the uh, after the revolution and Lunacharsky is the the commissioner for enlightenment I think um, and the the the, Bolsh- the sorry the red secularists in Germany this, even the socialists the social democrats. Uh, they, they go on study tours to the Soviet Union. Um, they're very interested in them. The, the whole the prolate cult uh, actually precedes the, the militant godless as their partner. So when they when they first found the international proletarian free thought, they list the prolate cult as the Soviet partner. Uh, and they they you know they they translate Bogdanov. I mean Bogdanov's being published in German uh, because Bogdanov. What is he writing about? About monism. He actually he likes that term. You know. And there is a whole Russian tradition of monism with Plekhanov and so on. And it continues, of course, in, in Lysenko and in Lysenkoism, uh, where the, you know, this agronomist, uh, Timofey Lysenko, uh, essentially has a kind of a theory of um, genetics that is really drawn out of that whole neo-Lamarckian thinking uh, from the from 19th century, you know, mostly German-Austrian um, uh, biology, it's heavily connected to Heckel. And, and there's this interesting character, uh, the uh, Kammerer, um, who's a, an Austrian biologist, student of Heckel's. And in the 20s, he's, he's a huge uh, uh, popularizer of the notion of the, uh, uh, what's it called, the acquiring of, uh, what is it, the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So basically, it's a neo-Lamarckian uh, idea where uh, he believes that organisms can learn from their environment and they can actually store the learning in their bodies genetically, essentially, and pass it on to their offspring. Um, and, and that is seen as, as a key genetic theory for socialism because it allows uh, human improvement and an evolution to move from the cultural sphere into the biological and to be you can have the new man will actually be physically improved uh, and that will be something that can be guided by the socialist society and so when Kammer is found out as a as a, a, a fraud essentially by some american biologist who uncovers his manipulation of his uh, specimens he apparently injected ink into his amphibians um when he's found out uh well he had been offered a chair 
in, in Moscow um, at an institute. Um, so so the, the Soviet, Lunacharsky was interested in Kammerer and his theories, and Kammerer uh, committed suicide then in 1926. And then Lunacharsky uh, wrote a screenplay uh, called Salamander, uh, which was produced as a Soviet film in the late 20s. And it's basically the story of Kammerer told from Lunacharsky's perspective. And the, the church uh, opponents played prominently as part of the conspiracy, the capitalist clerical conspiracy that drove him to suicide. Uh, so, so there is this this direct interaction. Oh, that's that's amazing. Uh, that's delightful. Yeah, yeah. One aspect, just uh, or I don't know if there, if did you have any? I don't want to cut in, but um, no, no, that was just my the, my comment on the interaction, the transnational yeah. interactions. Yeah. Well, this this is also this is also connected to the transnational, um, but from a from a from a different direction, which is. This kind of paradox that I um, I notice both in you know I I've done some research um, on the interactions between the Bolsheviks the or sorry excuse me the the godless the League of Milton godless and the proletarian free thinkers and um, and then reading your book um, this really came across as a theme which is there's this a paradox that the more the socialists try to put a distance between themselves and the worldview secularists, um, the closer they seem to be perceived by their opponents. So there's this kind of strange, uh, cr you know, kind of crossing where as they themselves are trying to become more politically kind of, um, I don't want to use the word mature because that's kind of but politically you know pragmatic and to eschew some of these utopian worldview projects or marginalize them um, um and keep them at a distance their opponents um both political and confessional are conflating them into this you know kind of uh godless communist behemoth that that only grows in power and i it's a paradox that i think is really historically has not yet been investigated how that construction of a kind of godless communism um and 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 its deployment as you talk about in your last chapter um actually is accompanied by a distancing within the movement itself, right? So it's not reflecting a kind of closer collaboration, but actually, um, despite that, that distance, showing some kind of merging of communism and, and, and secularism. Yeah, uh, well, I, there's, um, you know, I think, I think that the context, the political crises um, that these theories emerge in is important, right? So this idea of like godless communism comes up in periods of extreme uh, culture wars, right? In the 1920s, you have these, you know, existential threat to Christianity posed apparently by uh, the Soviet regime. And in that context, um, the this, this kind of ability to identify secularism or godlessness as this kind of glue that binds together all of the enemies of Christianity. Um, is is very attractive to the opponents of not just secularism but socialism, communism, liberalism, and so on. Uh, another thing that, of course, emerges in that context is anti-Semitism. Uh, so it, you know, there's a there is a, there's a, a role of, for anti-Semitism in that mix of 
godless communism, right? And, and uh, I think that that I have, you know, the idea of Judeo-Bolshevism, right, fits in there too. Um, so I think, I think that that for me explains, um, you know, why that sort of amalgam appears. Um, I'm noticing Stephen's uh, indication that we're coming up to an hour. I had, I had a kind of final question, maybe. Uh, so we both are writing, I think, histories, also about histories of failure, failed movements in some sense, right? I don't know if you agree with me there. Um, you know, in my case, the, the worldview secularist failed to, uh, you know, ever get over the animosity of party leadership to their activities. You, in a sense, are talking about the this long arc that ends in this kind of collapse into indifferentism of Soviet atheism. Well, why should why should people read books about failed uh, historical movements? I mean, I guess I would go back to some of the the, the uh, what we were discussing earlier, which is just because something fails doesn't make it historically in, inconsequential. Um, you know, we pursue projects that um, fail and their failure makes, a, you know, changes the course of history. So um, in a way, I think it's 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 acknowledging the difference between um you know the work of the historian and you know the work of the activist and the participant right is i'm not invested in their success i don't you know i didn't go into it to see them succeed i went into it to 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 see the consequences of their of their actions um and the meaning that those consequences kind of created for um for things beyond themselves right beyond the atheist sphere in particular. Um, so I think, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, there's there's something to be said for, you know, what could have been and what would have looked what, what it would have looked like. But I actually don't even think you have to go far into the world of counterfactuals. I think it's um, failure is perhaps maybe more important to understand than success because success seems self-evident. And if we stop looking at failure as self-evident, right? So a lot of times success seems like, well, of course, you know, it succeeded, therefore it had to, right? Because it was the, the, the thing that made the most sense or it was the most powerful or most effective. But failure, you know, we kind of began this conversation by saying, you know, why study something that, that the people themselves thought was a failure and marginal? Well, you know, if we kind of just take a step back from their own assessments, then we actually can learn a great deal beyond, you know, what the project itself was trying to achieve. Um, so I think if we kind of take success and failure at face value and just move forward, that's, you know, that's one thing, but I don't think that's what we're supposed to be doing as historians. I, I have a little bit different answer. I mean, I think, you know, we're both students of uh, 20th century communism, socialism. And in a sense, you know, we're talking about a failure of that project too. Right. And and I think that the you 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 bring up this term, the return of religion in the 80s in the Soviet case. Um, and uh, so in a sense, like it's not that religion triumphs over Bolshevism or something like that. But I, I think with the, with the collapse of the 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 self-evident power of the, the socialist ideal, 
uh, with the collapse of that, then other histories, you know, are opening up and become visible. And, you know, history of, of religion and its relationship to, to socialism is one of those histories. So in that sense, I think, uh, you know, yeah, it's a failure within another failure, right? The history of socialism in a sense. Uh, and, and then I would also say, from my point of view, uh, you know, why study marginal forms of secularism? And I agree with you, it's because they are historically important. And even, even if this worldview secularism always was like a junior partner in the in the uh in this endeavor right of of the radical left uh uh you know nonetheless it was structurally part of that entire project and it remained a structural part of that entire product project and the, and i think that in the tension that always existed between these two elements in in the radical left vision right which in your case communism and atheism in in my case the way i structured it like the cultures of, of secularism and socialism um that 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 yeah that tension and that the flux and that constant renewal of that relationship and the conflict between those parties and it, it is an interesting history well on behalf of everyone at kritika i want to thank victoria smolkin and todd weir for their conversation today uh, you can find links to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next History X Silo conversation. Goodbye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.